Amen. Thank you, twins. Girls, appreciate that. It's amazing that um, they could fit those theological, that author could fit, or musician could fit all those theological truths into a song where you could actually sing it. That was quite a feat. So we appreciate that, and boy, does that fit our theme of the new covenant. And we've been in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we've been talking about the new covenant because that's what the Apostle Paul talks about. And he gives a very passionate mini-teaching on the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. And the Apostle Paul not only defends his ministry in that he says, I am sufficient because God made me sufficient. I'm not sufficient in myself. But he also wants to make clear to the church, the saints of God at Corinth, these differences because they are very, very important to our faith, our walk, and how we live for Christ. And so we're treated really to this this passionate writing here. And it takes us into very, very rich and fertile theological soil. So I'm kind of just taking my time working through this because these are foundational truths. The Apostle Paul says that what God has made me sufficient to be is a minister of the new covenant. And I know that we're used to hearing all about the gospel, the good news, but the gospel and the covenant are one. The reason the gospel is good news is because of what Christ has accomplished by fulfilling the promise of the new covenant. So he has a ministry of the new covenant proclaiming those truths. Do you have that same ministry? What is your ministry? Your ministry as believers is also the ministry of the new covenant. And so that's one another reason why I decided just to kind of to, to lower the speed limit through this passage and pick up some of the most important themes. We're going to look at another important theme this morning. And what a beautiful song. The new covenant, one of Paul's whole point in this is that the new covenant is more glorious than the old covenant, or as the author of Hebrews puts it, better in every shape, form, and way. I mean, it's just the new covenant that blows the old covenant out of the water. The old covenant was never meant to be to remain in the spotlight. That's why the apostle says it's faded. It's faded out of the picture, not because it wasn't important and didn't serve its purpose. And we'll look at that. It was a glorious thing. But because something way more glorious has come and overshadowed it. What is the new covenant? Well, simply put, a covenant is a promise. And there's a lot of different definitions for a covenant. And some people call it a contract. Some people say it's a it's a uh, it's an agreement made in blood, and there, man can make. We have covenants uh, in our world, property cover, covenants, and so forth. But the covenants that we're talking about in Scripture are promises. It's it's no less than a promise. It might be more than that, but it's a promise made by God. That's what sets the covenants of Scripture way above any other covenant made. Because man is not as faithful and reliable to keep his promise. But when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And really, Scripture's all about just kind of following the way God has fulfilled the promises he's made. And he's, he made some simple promises in Genesis. There's a covenant there. 
And then he made promises to Abraham and, and of course, Moses and the Old Covenant and David and so forth. So we're just following God, fulfill his promise. And the area, the era that we're in right now is a fulfillment of the new covenant promise. It's not at all stretch of the imagination to say that you are in this place right now by the power of the spirit through the providence of God. And I know that you put forth effort and you woke up in the morning and cleaned yourself up and got dressed and so forth. But in the big picture, we are here because God is fulfilling the promise of the new covenant. And that promise is to redeem the lost, to build the church, the kingdom of God here on earth that one one day culminate in heaven. So your lives are the outworking of the fulfillment of the promise of God. This promise of the new covenant is to offer complete forgiveness. Something that man has always needed, always longed for, doesn't always realize it. But the problems that we have in our lives and in our society are because of our own sinfulness, our own brokenness. It's because of the sins that people commit against us that hurts, that's painful, and it affects us. We're we're a system of life. God created us. It's a community. We're a system of life. And somehow, in some way, when there's pain anywhere in the world, humanity feels it. And we have our own brokenness as well. God's promise is to redeem us from this so that we can live pure and clean without the guilt, without the shame in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven forever. And there's only one way that can take place. We cannot save ourselves. God's promise is to send a savior. Why can we not save ourselves? Because back in the garden when man fell, Adam representing all of humanity, his nature was tainted for good. So that means that God requires perfection. We can't offer it to get back into right standing with God. Because there's always something about us that falls short of that. So perfection on this human level is a thing of the past. And so God sends perfection into the world. And Christ lives the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve, and sustained salvation. That's the new covenant. That's what we're talking about here. So, well, what was the purpose of the old covenant? You know, God's a smart God. And the way and the timing of everything is impeccable. And so he builds throughout Scripture. He builds in humanity different um, enlightening truths that we need to understand to wrap our minds around the big picture. And the, the Old Covenant, just like any other covenant, was very, very important. important. And as you know, he gave it to us primarily, and it's, I'm, I'm simplifying things, to point us to Christ. So he gave us this truth... This way to live for God in that era for the main purpose of pointing us to trust in the era to come. If you live back then and pointing us to trust in the Savior to help us understand we need a Savior. We cannot do it on our own. By the way, if you look at um, in Genesis with the flood, when if you if you look at human sinfulness on a universal level, what did God do? The thoughts and intentions of man's heart were continually evil. 
filled with darkness. There wasn't any goodness coming out. So, in a sense, God starts over. There's a covenant with Noah, by the way, as well. He starts over. He just preserves one family. And you think, hallelujah, the world's saved because now the family will get restarted. I mean, the world will be restarted by a righteous family. And so the evildoers are gone. And what happened? It fell right back into sin and depravity. Why? Because Noah and his family were not righteous in a active, practical way. Noah was only righteous and found favor with God because of his faith. So if you wipe it, you, we might be tempted to think if we could just get rid of all these sinners in the world and start it over with somebody who's really righteous, then maybe we could get somewhere and save ourselves. It's not going to happen. We need a savior. So the whole purpose of the old covenant uh, in all of its beauty, glory and splendor was to show us that even when we have perfect laws to live by, I mean, law, the laws in the old covenant, the, the commandments, they will deliver. They are incredibly powerful if we walk in them as God intended. They will bless our socks off. But we can't. And one of the purposes of the Old Covenant is to show us that even when we have in our possession this beautiful gift from God of how the world works, how we can live with one another, worship one another, we cannot live with them. We cannot obey them. And therefore, we can't reap the blessings that are inherent in the living word of God. And we looked at the Old Covenant. Unfortunately, there were people in the Old Testament who decided that they can't keep, say, the moral law. They decided they were still going to make a great effort at saving themselves, if you will, work salvation, what we call self-righteousness. And so they took the laws that they could get pretty good at and obey, namely the ceremonial laws, and they would keep those to a T. That was something they could control. See, rather than, rather than bowing the knee and looking into their own hearts to see, I cannot please God. I fail him. I had this thought. I, had, I did this thing. My wife, my kids, my friends, whatever, against God. Rather than dealing with that, they said, but I can do this and this and this, and God will be pleased at that. So they had this external form of righteousness that on the outside looked impeccable, but they never changed their hearts. That's a dangerous, scary thing to know, that in this world, and again, it's not just a Jewish problem, it's a human problem, that in this world there are people that can look really, really holy and close to God based on their discipline, self-control, and commitment, and not even have a transformed heart, not even know God. And that's something that we as the family of God, the church, we need to be on our toes about in our own hearts. It's to never substitute our accomplishments as if that is something that is securing our relationship with God. I was, um, I think I've mentioned this probably many times, but I... The churches, I think, that might struggle the most with this temptation to have external uh, righteousness are the, is a high church with all the, the beautiful tradition and ceremony, which has, can have an important place. But the temptation 
of sin in us is to come into church. And I was raised Catholic, so I saw this and watch. Boy, when you're in, in, in church during that 45 minutes, you've never seen such holiness. I mean, there's just with the ceremonies and the genuflection and and the traditions and so forth. Everybody is on their absolute best behavior. Peace be with you. You're shaking hands. But you as soon as that hour is over, it's for some, not all. It's worldliness. It's evil. It's serving Satan. That's what I grew up with as a child. I I saw that. We see it in other churches, too. And so there can be this, this false sense of security that because I did this right, God must be pleased with me. The symbols, the ceremonies, the traditions are only as good as what they symbolize. They have no saving power. They have no power to transform our heart. And that's what we need to be saved. Another example of of looking to ceremony, traditions, or, or perhaps the way that beautiful, powerful, say, religious or spiritual moments might affect our hearts and give us goosebumps is... Um, Today we have, or not today, but in the church, one of the sacraments is, is baptism. So once upon a time, I baptized a person that made a profession of faith. And as far as I knew, it was a genuine profession of faith. The best that I could tell, the best that this person could, could tell. And so as an act of obedience, I encouraged them to come to the waters and be baptized. And baptism is an external demonstration of the real spiritual, internal, invisible work of God to clean a heart and a soul. That's what baptism is. It's a ceremony. So this person came. They were baptized. It was, they said it was one of the best experiences in their life. They'd never felt so clean and holy. They lived a pretty, a pretty um, off-the-path life before they came to Christ. And baptism is that external visualization of the internal cleaning. And this individual just felt so good about themselves, felt so clean, had never felt that clean or holy and close to God before. But baptism is just external. And so if we baptize somebody here, it, it only, it, you might get a little cleaner, you know, if we put a little bit of palm olive or some dawn or dish soap or something in there, you might come away externally fresh and your skin refreshing and clean. But that has no bearing. If you're not saved, your heart is not clean. It's just a meaningless ceremony. So this person had this wonderful experience and then sadly eventually went back to a path of sin. And about a year and a half later called me and said, Pastor Paul, I really want to get baptized again. Oh, why is that? Well, I've, I've fallen off the path and I just feel really dirty. Well, what were they wanting? They wanted that symbolism, that clean feeling again of, of, of holiness. So it's a misunderstanding thinking that if I just get in that baptism pool again or tub, then I will f- get that feeling again. That's a misappropriation of what really cleans us. 
The way we get that feeling is through understanding properly and believing in the promises of God that when I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So the temptation was to go back to the ceremony, to go back to the external representation of what takes place because they can make us feel pretty close to God and good. But I could baptize somebody a thousand times until they were prunes. And it would not do anything for their hearts. So ceremonies point to the real thing. They have their proper place. They're beautiful. I love traditions and ceremonies when they're understood. By the way, I wasn't I was raised in the Catholic Church and I didn't get saved until I was a teenager. I I just went to church because that's what my family did. And um, there were people in that church that were true believers, for sure. Uh, but it was just like going through the motions. You know, your parents bring you to church, right? And you just get something you got to do and you do the best you can with it. Later, when I got saved, I went back to that same Catholic church. They were in a different building, a more beautiful building. And I was looking at the traditions and the ceremonies now with eyes that were enlightened, that loved Christ. And man, did I love those traditions and ceremonies. They were so powerful to me because now I understood the intent was to glorify God, not glorify myself in how I did those things. So... If we do not have Christ in our hearts, we're, no matter how many ceremonies, baptisms, whatever, we're still going to be like that woman at the well. We're still going to be thirsty. No matter what we try, it's going to feel good for a little while, and then we're going to be thirsty again. And only Christ offers the water that we can drink where it will quench our thirst. So let's read our passage this morning. And jump into our new truth that will enable us to appreciate the new covenant as more glorious than the old covenant. And I am going to read it all again. 3, 5 through 18. Now that, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when, when, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. 
Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the one more truth that I want to look at this morning to reveal how glorious the new covenant is, is that it is a ministry of righteousness. We looked at the ministry of death and condemnation in the old covenant and compared it to the ministry of life in the new covenant. But the Apostle Paul also tells us that in this new covenant is a ministry of righteousness. And it far exceeds what was exposed or revealed in the old covenant. God's laws are righteous. We've learned this. There's nothing wrong with the laws of God. The problem is man. We cannot keep them. They're beautiful. They offer blessings to life because they're true. And they just, it's, it's, it's in harmony with God's creation. So God's laws are righteous. Our sin condemns us. How do we escape the condemnation that we hear about? So in order to be in right standing with God, we have to be righteous. And basically that's what that word means. It means to be in right standing with God. We can't be in right standing with God because we're not righteous because we're sinners. So that's the problem. So then how do we become righteous? Well, we have some options. One of the options is to try to become righteous by fulfilling the law. We've looked at that. And that's a failed attempt. Scripture tells us it's a failed attempt to try to work our way back up and become so disciplined and and desirous to do right that we attain righteousness on our own. So that's an option, but it's a dead end. So what does Scripture offer, offer us if we cannot do anything within our own power to put us in right standing with God? Because according to Scripture, when you look at the heart of man, it's a pass fail. It's not a scaled grade like, well, you're an A, you're a B, you're a C, D minus over here. Uh, not even off the, the, the ground over here as far as how close you are to God in your works. It's a pass or fail. So Galatians 3, the same apostle, Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. It's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all Things written in the book of the law and do them. And then James chapter 2, a different apostle tells us, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. How, how can that be true? I mean, I got one answer wrong on a thousand question test and I failed the whole thing. It's because God's the creator of the universe and he's a holy God. And everything is interconnected. And we can't just have like one little area that we fail in in God's perfect world. It's pass or fail. And he says to, to break one commandment is to break them all. Because ultimately you have failed God. That's the biggest commandment. You, you're, we're, we're created to be his worshipers. Worship him in perfection and to sin in any way against anybody in God's holy universe 
is to fail them all because you have failed the Creator. You've failed the giver of the law. So to help us understand the superiority of the new over the old covenant, uh, Paul refers to the Exodus 34 passage when Moses went up the mountain. He got the commandments on the stones inscribed by the finger of God. He was up there a long time. Uh, I I think the scripture says he didn't eat or drink for about 40 days. And you would think he was going to come down that, that mountain looking pretty ragged. I know I would. If you took my food away from me for 40 days, I'd be pretty hangry. Moses comes down looking great because he has the Shekinah glory reflecting off his face because he was in the presence of God. He never looked better, it turns out. The Shekinah glory means in the presence of. And then Paul gives this teaching about being veiled and unveiled, and that is our next sermon in this. And so I'm going to pass over that. But when they saw Moses, they were afraid to gaze at him. Why? Because it represented the glory of God, and they knew their own sinfulness. It made them nervous. It made them antsy. They didn't want to be that close to God. Remember, they already told Moses, uh, you go up and talk to him. I don't want anything to do with that. It's all that thunder and lightning and smoke up there. Uh, you, can you do it for us, please, and find out what he wants and just come and tell us? And so he kind of brought some of that down with him, and it made them nervous, that overspray of glory. So Paul is telling us all this about the grandeur of how the Old Covenant came to be, the tablets, and then the glory shining forth from Moses. Why is he telling us this? Well, to make the point that the Old Covenant and the giving of the law was an incredibly glorious thing. Like this was a profound moment on earth, what was happening on that mountain. One of the greatest things The greatest thing that had ever happened to that point. It's all a very glorious thing. The law is glorious. It reflects God's character, reflects God's eternity, reflects God's will for man, reflects his nature. And even in all of that, it is a limited glory. It's limited. It's not the final word. There's more glory to come. Why? Because all of that, the giving of the law, did not empower man to keep the law. It's on stone. It's just words. You can read all the books you want. It doesn't empower you to do what those books tell you to do. So, as glorious it was, it did not enable them to keep the old uh, commandments. So then comes the new covenant. Paul calls it the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of life, and then also the ministry of righteousness. And the difference is that in the New Covenant, and I won't read it again, but it's in Jeremiah 31, the promise was that, okay, the day will come when I'm actually going to write my laws in your heart. I'm going to inscribe them on the heart of flesh, not on stones and then give them to you. I'm putting them inside you. Then you will be enabled to obey them and live before me. It's a whole regeneration. It's a transformation of a heart. It's a new nature. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And so now, that is why the new covenant is so much more glorious than the old. 
is because we have the Spirit of God and we are enabled to obey the commands of God while we are already transformed and in right standing with God. So the, the initial problem was, if we have to be righteous in order to be right standing with God, how do we accomplish that if, if doing what God requires is impossible for us? Does the Holy Spirit come into us and then now we can be works righteous oriented? Where does that right standing come from? How can we please God? If the law was preached and didn't provide the ability. Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says in 21 through 26. And I'm winding it down now. Because these are the truths. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the law even talks about the righteousness of God that will take place apart from the law, not by obeying the law. So to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So if you can't get righteous or be in right standing by your good works. Then how Did God provide the way? The way to righteousness is through faith in the righteousness of Christ. It's in putting your faith in what Christ accomplished. In the fact that he lived the perfect life. So all of this, all of our hopes of getting approved by God in and of ourselves. Actually, we look now to Christ. We we give him the applause for his achievement. He gets the glory for it. So in order to have a proper faith, we have to understand that we have nothing to bring to the table. We have no glory of our own. We cannot please God to the point of attaining salvation. But he has provided a way for us to be saved by looking at beholding the beautiful work of Christ on our behalf. It's humbling that he had to do it for us. And humility is all part of the package. So. New Covenant changes the view of God on the sinner. How so? Because now, if you are a sinner and he sees your sin and his wrath is hot against you, what, but if he sees your faith in Christ, you have God's approval. Because you don't have the righteousness, but Christ does. And Christ clothes you or covers you in righteousness. And justice has been done. Because Christ died the death that we deserve to die. It's all that substitutionary sacrifice. Christ does everything for us. That's why if it could be done by works. In some of his letters, Paul says, okay, look, if you want to go there, let's go there. I'll go toe to toe with you when it comes to your pedigree. I'm the Jew of Jews. I'm not just a Jew, I'm a Benjamite. One of the noblest tribes. Fierce and noble 
tribes. If you want to, if you want to make it about credentials, I got the pedigree. I'm a Pharisee. I once read where there was only about 6,000 Pharisees in existence when the Apostle Paul lived. I mean, this was an elite spiritual force, if you will. So he's a fanatic. Philippians 3.6, he says, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to zeal a persecutor of church as to righteousness under the law, blameless, he says. And that was his pre-Christ mindset. Blameless, he thought. He was a salvation by works poster boy if there was such a thing. He would have gained it. But then what does he say? He continues in Philippians, the very next verse. But whatever I gain... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So what had happened? He realized that in looking at Christ and what Christ did and the truths of the new covenant, that really what he brought to the table that he thought was this great passing grade was nothing but a fail. It was displeasing to God. All his glory that he could muster up, all of his achievements were like, were like dung. But when he looked at Christ, his was so tremendous and glorious that he almost forgot about his... Why would I even want to make mention of anything I've done on earth when I can talk about what Christ has done on earth? You see the difference and the change in the mindset? So John MacArthur says, when it comes to salvation... You know what it means to be circumcised the eighth day? Nothing. Know what it means to be of the nation of Israel? Nothing. Salvation's not by ritual. It's not by race. You know what it means to be in the tribe of Benjamin? Nothing. Salvation's not by privilege. You know what it means to be a Hebrew of Hebrews? Nothing. Salvation's not by tradition. You know what it means to be a Pharisee? Keeping the law? Salvation's not by religious observance. You know what it means to be a zealous persecutor of the church? Nothing. It's not by zeal and it's not by external morality. None of that is anything. It's all dung. The Apostle Paul continues in Philippians, the very next verses. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But... That which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. So all those works just turned into faith and relationship. What? I just want to know. I want to know this God that has done so much for me. That's what my life's about now. It's not about how good I am. How I can please people. How I can please God. Now that I've, my eyes have been opened, my life is all about getting to know this one. How does he think? What can I do? How can I get to know him in the power of his resurrection? He died on the cross for me. He walked out of that tomb for me. He is here. And all the laws that he gave, now they can be a blessing to me. So I want to give my life to knowing him and pleasing him through my faith in the Savior that he provided for us. That's the glory that surpasses that of the Old Testament. And I praise God for that surpassing glory of the new covenant because we get to be a part of it. Why do we sing about Christ, talk about Christ, everything is about Christ, homework's about Christ, praising and prayers about Christ? 
because it's better. It's the, it's the best life can be. It's a ministry of righteousness. May God bless the preaching of his word.